Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, and welcome into part two of our Top 6 2018 episode. Sequels are all the rage. Literally our only things that are ever seen in movies. Yeah. You know, we should do a remake of our first part. Okay. So, um, so I'm not going <laughs> to pay attention to you right now. Alex, please, yes. We've done this every year, and it's, uh, it is... Sound like my parents. Seriously, one of my favorite parts of the year is mm-hmm. thinking about these little things uh, in different aspects of films and then uh, mentioning them, and it's, it's so much fun to do. So, um, why don't we start right off uh, with our list, as I think there's 13 categories yeah. we decided we'll on this year. Out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with uh, Best Male Actor, uh, since that was the first one I have written down. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um Want to go in the same order we went in on the uh, yeah. first part of the episode? Yeah. Do it. Go All ahead, right. So my best male actor of this past year is, surprise, surprise, Ethan Hawke in his role as Ernst Teller in First Reformed. Holy fucking shit. How the fuck was he not nominated for this? Because it is incredible. Oh, my God. I... So fucking hype! Even thinking about this film, I want to watch it again. Ah, uh, yeah. You're making me want to watch it. Here, yeah, man. you should because it's, it's good fucking movie. good. Yeah, it's great. Oh my god! When he um, there's that like Nick, you've seen it, right? Yep. Like the the scene where um, his one female friend is like trying to comfort him uh, and talk to him and stuff, and he just like Alex would love that he, scene. So I wouldn't even say oh my, only because yeah. you're gonna. That's gonna be the one scene I actually thought of you. Yeah. That's, when I watched yeah, it. That's, that, that's, but that's yes, Alex I know score. what you're talking about when he has a very direct conversation Oh, with my God. It was so awesome. This movie's so great. <laughs> oh, my God. Fuck the Academy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's my, my best male actor. Thank you, Tucson. Yeah. <laughs> um, mine is kind of a tie for two okay. different uh, avenues of acting, <laughs> and that would come down between... My first, which would be Robert Redford in The Old Man and the Gun. Okay. Uh. So many times I feel like this kind of performance is so bad and phoned in because it's kind of what I would call a legacy performance. That's where some director who's of talent and uh, whatnot comes along and it's like, you know what, I want to do a project that for a, a late actor who hasn't had a great role in a while to really go home on, you know, like to, to just remember what we loved about him and her or her and to kind of just... I don't know, sail off into the sunset, so to speak. And to be quite honest, that's what this is for Robert Redford. I mean, it's called The Old Man and the Gun. It's, it's kind of this vague nostalgia um, uh, ode to uh, a cinema and to a world uh, that's from a bygone era. But 
Robert Redford is still so fucking charming uh, in his old age, and frankly, he no plastic d- surgery had there. No, and <laughs> <laughs> but he just—he's um, old. He's he like, is isn't he like eighty five or something? I think like he's that? older than that. Yeah, yeah, I think he's in his nineties or close to ninety. Uh, close to ninety. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's. There's old, and then they're scolding a inanimate no. object he old. Looks, he no, easily he... looks like he's in his early 70s. But is Agreed. he yelling at a chair? No. But unlike Clint, Clint Eastwood, Eastwood... does not look like he's in his early 70s. And unlike Clint Eastwood, in my opinion, he, Robert Redford is still <laughs> capable of delivering a good performance. And The Old Man and the Gun is no exception. It's such a loving ode to a kind of crime film that no longer happens anymore. Um... And yeah, he was just fantastic in it. So I just really wanted to. Robert Redford that. is turning eighty-three this year. Oh, okay, by the way. so he is so in his eighties, but he's forever young. So the other one, though, I was going to mention is that I also can't shake uh, Matt Dillon in the house that okay. Jack built. Uh, the complete opposite of Redford's uh, just kind of calm, <laughs> subtle demeanor. Matt Dillon is just laying on this kind of autistic, sociopathic. Uh, deviant killer and it is uncomfortable because his performance just fucking hurts i mean the social awkwardness the uh just awful uh philosophical musings that he completely sells his conviction in and so on and so forth i I just think matt dillon was like I was already sold on the movie because of the casting because I've always thought of Matt Dillon as a weird dude, but he actually doesn't just settle for that. He gives I think one of his best performances in a decade or so. Mm. Like this is just um, maybe one of uh, the best roles of its kind because never before have I seen a serial killer be so sociopathic and yet so. Uh, within himself, uh, having his own personality without being like crazy, he's it's just uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. So uh, Matt Dillon, is I now. would agree. <laughs> so my best male acting performance actually is a little bit under the radar, um, but I was considering somebody else. But at the same time, I just kept coming back to the same person. And that was Nicholas Holt in The Favorite. And he delivered, I actually thought, the best performance in the entire film, even though a lot of people, and rightfully so, loved Olivia Coleman, Rachel Weisz, and Emma Stone. I still need to watch it. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It is not uh, the best work, I would say, from uh, Yorgos Lanthimos. How does it compare to The Lobster? Um, It's probably in the same ballpark for me. Oh, okay. For me, for I, me, his previous two English language films are better. Uh, yeah. I feel like this one is somehow his exact brand of weirdness and obscenity, and yet also made palatable by his historical regalcy. Mm. Yeah. That being said, uh, I do know two people who have seen this who are not into film and thought it was one of the worst piles of dribble they've seen. So that's why I'm kind of surprised it's gotten as big <coughs> as it has. Like I'm. Anyway, at at any rate, um, this film is really driven home, well, partly by its Yorgos Lanthimos bizarreness, but also to by the four acting performances. And Nicholas Holt is sort of completely under the radar within this own film. Um, But at the same time, first of all, he's just a wonderful actor just in general. Um, And 
he delivers a supreme performance here of being the white male leader while at the same time having to be under three women in a way. So he he's playing the leading male card and being the voice of a lot of things, but at the same time having to go for permission to three different levels of government almost at this time uh, with the queen and her two maids that are under her. Uh, and it, it is such a weird performance, but also um, such a power struggle with him and the three of them. And he's like, he goes through this weird, it's, it, it's almost like, you know, somebody like growing to a different size and then shrinking down based on their confidence level. Like, there are points of this film where it feels like he is the king of England. And then there are points of this film like it feels like he's a servant at the very lowest level. And the way it plays uh, with the way Nicholas Holt plays it is just so wonderful. He's also definitely, for me, the funniest part of this film. Um, and it is very uncomfortable at a lot of parts, too. So he is uh, he is giving a crackerjack of a performance, but at the same time... Crackerjack! A... Um, somewhat easy to see why things continue the way they do because he's just kind of continuing with the traditions of white male of yesteryear while we have to play along with the fact that there's a queen right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, uh, he gives a great performance here and I just thought he was fantastic. So Nicholas Holt in the favorite was my favorite male actor. Ah, you cheeky cheek. Thank you. Thank uh, you. God. Damn. Whoa. What is happening? Craziness. All right. Moving on to our favorite female lead. Okay. Uh, my favorite female lead of the year was Tony Collette in her role as Annie Graham from Hereditary because holy shit, she knocked it out of the park. It was just a descent into madness. Fuck the Academy. God damn. Ooh. Um, my voice is a little sore right now but i would have we can tell yeah but it's just it's it's so ah it it, she she dominates that film it's so much like the god i can't make words to like describe how fucking incredible she is in that role she makes that film she owns that film just when she's like like the one scene we were talking about where she's yelling at her son just like un unbridling herself of all this like pent up anger and resentment and rage and just like despair and I'm just like fuck this is almost a god if if it wasn't for the supernatural elements this would be the most terrifying and heartbreaking part of the entire fucking film and really it is so um yeah she's great Tony Collette um that's my best um female actor Alrighty, yeah. my favorite female performance of the year uh, comes courtesy uh, from uh, an actress named Madeline Brewer, who played the main character in a Netflix-acquired film called Cam, where she plays a uh, cam girl. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, does that for a living, and she finds herself. Oh, she's the girl from. Um, she's the girl from. Uh, oh, With the dragon tattoo. No, not that one. Uh, she's the girl who is a supporting character on a TV show that I actually watch, Handmaid's Tale. 
Yes, she is. Yes. Yes. There we go. Yeah, she played a supporting character in there and in Orange is the New Black very briefly. Yep. Um, and she is fantastic in this movie, Cam, where she, in the first seven minutes alone, we get an uninterrupted uh, session, basically, where she is camming with her uh, followers and supporters. And she, like, I know the film was co-written by a, a person who is actually in the industry and did cam for a living for a brief spot but it also that authenticity can can only go script far and you still need an actress who is going to sell that level of human uh uh just <laughs> i don't know a, a laborious kind of work and she absolutely uh sells both avenues which is the the woman who is terrified of losing her own identity and sense of self as the kind of surreal Black Mirror, Twilight Zone-esque uh, plot is happening, but also as the uh, just rising star in uh, her particular website of someone who is taking this community at, for what it is, which is A, supporting her and enabling her to live the life she wants to live, but also not looking... She, there, there's nothing from her performance that has like an air of superiority like i'm playing this to show how the others live or anything like that it's just a completely lived in performance uh and it's fantastic and she has to do a lot in this movie and she nails every single part and frankly that movie was in my top 10 until i just knocked it out because i don't know that it completely sticks its landing but it is completely worth watching uh through and through especially because of her performance so that was Madeline Brewer in Cam. I need to watch that. You should. Everybody should. I need to like take uh, a personal list of like all the films that we've mentioned across this episode and just like watch them because like I I've been meaning to see these films. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why these are fun. It's a good yeah. snapshot. I know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I already mentioned it, so I don't have too much to say about it, but the best female actor for me was Claire Foy in Unsane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the other one I almost said. Yeah. Uh, she delivers a just wonderful performance, um, and I, even though I haven't seen it, I know she's done good work on The Crown. I obviously also loved her in First Man, um, but at the same time, she is just really delivering a terrifyingly... <laughs> strong performance here in this film and it is um wonderful to see and um wonderfully delivered i mean i i think she shows why is another reason why steven soderbergh is such a wonderful director because of what he can get out of actors playing these very i don't want to say bizarre but very um unusual characters i'm not saying that because of 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 this being a film about mental illness but also, too, this takes a different approach at that than most films of, of its ilk would kind of try to do. Um, and she does a great job with that. So um, Claire Foy in Unsane was my favorite female performance of the year. Time for everybody to have fun and do a slam dunk here real quickly on our mm. least favorite film of the year or worst, whichever you want to call it. Okay. This should not be hard for most people to do. Okay. Um. It's just a race to the fucking bottom. Mine is actually a split between two. Um, the worst films of the year for me were Vox Lux and uh, The Cloverfield Paradox, which was so <laughs> bad that I erased it from my memory until it was mentioned in incidental conversation 
via this recording that I needed to then like I then I then needed to put it well spoilers, on. it is my worst film of the year. Yep. Okay, so let's let's just talk about this a little bit. Um Vox Lux, I I think that the framing device of the beginning is um it is grotesque, it is gratuitous, and none of that energy and none of that horror enter, ever manifests into anything which is which merits its existence. Which actually like what about the fucking weird and bad narration by Willem Dafoe. You know, that's one thing. I I, I really <laughs> like Willem Dafoe and you know there's so many parts of this film that had they been arranged or, or, or reconstructed in such a way by somebody who was more capable, like I could I could see myself like I, 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 I would have fucked with this film if it had been just a better film, but it's just an awful fucking film that just exists for no reason that that has a a a a milk toast um commentary on on celebrity culture on pop idolism of the millennial like generation i think that it is just um it's honestly just manipulative and from its beginning because i just i fucking i'm just thinking i'm more mad about it looking back in hindsight and thinking about what that film actually did with that energy and did nothing with it that I feel like, why would you make me have to watch that scene and see that happen and then to do absolutely nothing with it? The problem with Vox Lux... It's a lot. To go off of what you're saying, yeah, is that I'm in on the first scene because... Right. It, it go, is it, it going go, somewhere? It, go, it, goes in on, it goes in on the idea of school shootings mm-hmm. before they were a thing. Right. And... I'm interested. I'm 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 in on what this is going to go towards. Unfortunately, and where does it go towards, unfo- Alex? Where does it go? Unfortunately, that's where I jump off. There. Yeah. And actually, the film for me is not ruined, but it go- starts going in the wrong direction right after that. <laughs> yeah. Because we have some gorgeous shots of ambulances driving to hospitals yeah. with wonderful music behind it. Yeah. Um, in the opening title sequence, and they have the, the title sequence is them scrolling through all the fucking credits that would have usually go. So you can't. It so, was fucking weird. So you can't see the wonderful cinematography they've yeah. done. <laughs> oh my god! And it is like I'm just like holy shit! Is, is, Someone is hitting the auteur juice is, a little is, too is hard. Nicholas Winding Refn in the in the room. That's what, what I thought. What, was, what is going? Stop it! Look, you know. Here's, here's what. Here's you what, know. Here's what I'd say. Like. As much as I had unkind things to say about the Neon Demon, <laughs> in hindsight and being able to just like, t- like take at t- to to take at faith what he was trying to do with that film, I feel as though he did more with Neon Demon than whoever the fuck directed this film did with Vox Lux. I don't even know who directed this film. See? I don't. Here, here's the, who here, who did this? Honestly, Whose story. fault is this? It was a it was an actor, wasn't it? Like it was his first. Yeah, I forget where he came from, but he's some random. Yeah. Um, I, I I will say, um, I was I was bummed because I a was really looking forward to this because I really do think Natalie Portman is a fantastic actress. Yeah, and I really don't think she's actually the biggest problem with this film. Right. But that being said, she's she gets brought down with the ship here. Yeah. Um. 
Just I will re- say yeah. really quick, I haven't seen Box Lux, mm. and I don't plan on it. <laughs> um, but this is not the same medium, but because I'm that person now, nope. I will say if you want a good look at the idolization of pop stars. Ooh, what are you going to mention? Ooh. Whatnot, I would say that I would I recommend reading yeah. Kieran Gillen's yeah. comic, The Wicked and the Divine. Yeah. Which is much, much better at what I assume Box Lux is. Oh, absolutely. Going it's for. so fucking good. I love that comic. Anyway, anyway just wrapping up the whole. Vox Lux thing. I hate that fucking film. I did mention Cloverfield Paradox. Um, I'm just going to make a note just to transition to Nick. Um, while I hated Vox Lux <laughs> because I just thought it was such a gratuitous, grotesque, manipulative, and ultimately just underwhelming piece of film, I find Cloverfield Paradox as as damnable, if not more so, because not only did it sour myself on a film, but it also jettisoned all the goodwill I had at the perspective of a Cloverfield multiverse right out the fucking airlock. So, for more on that, Nicholas. Yeah, um, the Cloverfield Paradox is not even on the bottom of my list. There's actually two films below it. Wow. But... This should have been a slam dunk for someone like myself who enjoys these kind of anthologized uh, sci-fi tales of craziness. This is right up your alley. Especially one that deals with quantum physics. Right. This is right up your alley. For this movie to not only waste an entirely good, diverse cast uh, and have no idea what it wants to do with its own plot, let alone its connective tissue to a fucking franchise. I think why this is my worst film of the year is because it does all that while also completely wasting what could have been a revolutionary evolution in its always uh, escalating marketing campaign. And the idea that it didn't just literally reach the top of Everest, but it accidentally tripped and is now just falling down the side of the mountain is just unfortunate. And God, I never want to watch this film again, but I obviously, I think I could be persuaded to with weed or alcohol. So uh, it's not the worst film I've ever seen, but it's easily the worst try I've ever witnessed. The reason why you put it even though there's like two films below it, it's because yeah. you actually had expectations. One will be mentioned, I'm yeah. sure. The other one, I will say, is The Wrinkle in Time, which was actually at the very bottom of my list. Damn, and I just like... have never seen a film not actually start. Damn. It was just a blue screen the whole time. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the uh, the funny thing about that is I'll, I will kind of remember. It also has Google Mabatha in it. From uh, from the Oscars last year, when they literally stop a production of that so they can have all the people bring in random things during. That's that. why those people were fucking freaking out and excited <laughs> because they had to watch that and they were like, "Oh God, oh celebrities, this is so much better than Seriously, what we were watching." Though, Guillermo del Toro is walking in with a fucking yeah sub three foot sub sandwich, and somebody just got they they turned off Oprah on the screen. It was just like. Yeah, I would have been the same way. Normally, that would have pissed me off. Like, I don't care who's coming in my theater. Even if it was Paul Thomas Anderson, I'd say, Paul, wait in the lobby. But if it was that movie, I would have been like, come on in. Got a birthday cake. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Well, no one, too. My worst film of the year had really no competition, even though Cloverfield Paradox is uh, second on my list, um, is that movie was terrible. Hmm. Um, this film, I thought, 
just was just completely awful and i don't understand what happened here um and that was jurassic world fallen kingdom wow one it was so bad i forgot this is what happens like films are so bad that i erase them from my memory because i don't need that shit on my hard drive and then you're like damn uh kenny who is the biggest jurassic park fan i i know of um, tried to have a conversation with me about it, and I slapped him back every time. And I'm like, "Well, I hate to do this, but when I'd the- rather talk about Donald Trump." <laughs> <laughs> What's he up to today? Uh, I already thought this movie was terrible, but then they decided to just think they had some great thought when they were like, "What about human cloning? Hey, are any of these people real?" Fuck. I just... Um... God damn. And not th- the fact that um, this film's final scene went on for about 55 minutes, and this film only really had three total scenes in it, too, was really weird. <laughs> and also, too, this film decided to have its climactic fight go on for about 14 seconds, even though the final scene is 55 minutes. Remember when we went to... What? Remember when we went to go see it in the theater? And it was one of those sit-down restaurant kind of theaters. They had cosplayers? They had cosplayers for this. Like, how embarrassing is that? (laughs) To have to walk out of a theater. You couldn't even do it for the good Jurassic World film. (laughs) Oh, shit. Oh, my God. That's Uh. one of those where I was like, I hope they brought a gun. (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> remember, remember the one like dinosaur that cried when it was left to die on the island. That actually wasn't that bad. Uh, that was like your the worst film of the year. <laughs> yeah, was, Why uh, are you going to bat for this? Oh no, no, that was the that was the sole bright spot was the dinosaur because the dinosaur had a way out, but we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that film was just. He got totally off awful. lucky. <laughs> got to. Got to you got to suffocate to death from smoke inhalation? Oh, Sweet. <laughs> First I've ever heard of that. He got off lucky. Damn. <laughs> we have to live with it. We had to watch so the rest of it. So Rapture. Ooh. <laughs> oh, okay. my God. Not much more time is needed to be spent <laughs> yeah. on that. Okay. So, uh, moving on from worst film, we go to a category that I think all of us will enjoy, as all of us really do appreciate good cinematography. Mm-hmm. So, um... What is everyone's best cinematography of this year? Uh, my best, can- my candidate for best cinematography this year was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse because I think that it's it goes hand in hand with why I think that this film, even with its 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 weaknesses, and I think that it does have weaknesses, um, I think that it is one of the best Spider-Man films, is because. There's a sort of verticality with Spider-Man and that he's able to climb walls and stuff like that. But it's oh, so far when we have seen those kind of portrayals, we've only seen them from like the same level of 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 a from the our orientation of us like like actually standing on the ground. We only see him like climbing up the walls. We don't actually see the perspective of him and what it looks like to him. Uh. Trying to explain this as well as I can. It kind of reminds me of like a Mario 3D platformer where Mario – I know this sounds really fucking stupid. No, no, yeah. But where the orientation changes with our protagonist to show how normal this kind of, uh, you know, 
movement is. What's the one uh, musical where the guy is like dancing on oh, the actual? Oh, uh, that's the uh, whatever with uh, Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire. Yeah. I forget what it's called. It's something wedding. Yeah, something wedding. Yeah, but like that's sort of like what Royal. I'm getting at. Where there's a scene where Miles Morales is talking to Spider-Man, and they're walking along the side of a building, and. It, it only it, there's an establishing shot that just shows how uncanny and weird this entire situation is, but it's just such a benign like scene of exposition and just like moving into the next thing. But it, it it's able to highlight what is so interesting about this character in a way that feels ambient, that feels natural, and that it, it it's not a matter of like 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 special effects spectacle, like them just navigating and web slinging stuff. It's just the most benign way of 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 characterizing something that is so extraordinary and something so natural to this character and i just don't feel like any other spider-man film with maybe the exception of maybe spider-man 2 with that whole like uh train scene um actually like even graphs after that in a lot of ways like this 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 is that's only one example of of how well i feel like the cinematography communicates value about that character and what that character can do and how and what their relationship is to everybody else around them so yeah that's a go to spider-verse for me yep uh, my pick for best best cinematography is unsane by steven soderbergh yeah. it's uh it's obviously it's not going to be an all-timer in the one perfect shot echelon but um is it echelon or echelon I like to say echelon because I'm like that. Okay. Oh, you're like that. Yeah. Um, I I just think that what he does with iPhones is really fucking cool to watch. Nothing is like outside of an iPhone's like comfort zone. It's not like he's like trying to make it more than it is. But he, because he is a veteran auteur, is because filmmaking is so ingrained within him from both his knowledge of film from watching it because that's one of my favorite things of following him as a filmmaker is that he always posts at the end of a year every single piece of media he consumed so you can see every episode of television and every movie he watched that year and you just see that he breathes and exudes films but also from the films that he's made and learned from he just because that is so ingrained within him he can shoot with anything in any situation so to see him do it with iPhones uh, should come off as gimmicky but it really never did it just looked great the fact that he is doing his next film on an iPhone is a little worrisome to me. I feel like it's less worrisome and more just that he kind of saw that it worked and like he he goes through phases. I mean, he does his color tinting phase, then he now he's doing his iPhone phase. Like yeah. he is someone who when he gets on the playground, he goes up and down the same slide five times <laughs> because he just finds it so fun, but eventually he'll go to the monkey bars and you know, and I'm okay with that personally because he's not going to like stop even if he says he's retired. <laughs> Clearly, I know. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, Unsane was easily uh, the most I was engaged with uh, cinematography. My favorite film, uh, cinematography wise, this year was Revenge. Oh, ah, thought, but I'm excited. Yeah, uh, I I thought that was a beautifully shot film. I thought the um, framing devices throughout it were basically flawless. Um, and really, the thing that makes this film stand out from other films is that scene in the uh, catacomb cave, whatever you want to call it, 
Um, that is just one of the more beautiful scenes that I can recall. Um, and lighted. Yep. Yeah. And it just everything plays together and leads to wonderful looking film on screen. Um, and a lot of other things play into it, but yes, the the blocking, the framing, uh, the lighting, everything leads up to just a perfect looking picture on on the screen. And from scene to scene, night to day, um, this film really hits it all and is just beautiful to watch. I mean, this goes from just gorgeous vistas to uh, a worm inside an apple slowly eating away his carcass, you know. But the the great thing about it is it starts with the worm vista and goes to uh, basically the end of the earth, uh, literally falling on a dead tree. And having to cut that out of her own body. Um, and then ends back at the uh, hotel in a much different way than we started. Yes, it does. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, Revenge was uh, was awesome. And it was actually uh, not that hard of a choice. So good. Yeah, it was. Okay, so for next, uh, best visual effects. Best visual effects? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um... I must have missed that one. I don't okay. know Okay. Somehow I don't have that one either. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think I, some, I don't know how I... I don't know okay. what Well, happened. I'll go, and yeah. if yes. you guys want to think of one, yeah. All you right. go right ahead. Yeah. So this is a category that, um, to me, is feels like it's getting somewhat ruined by the Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they look at this and see, oh, best CGI, great. Uh, and I feel like it goes so much deeper than that. Um, obviously, CGI is a very important part of visual effects in a lot of big-budget films and also smaller-budget films to a lesser extent. Um, but practical physical effects and also um, just creating good stunt work throughout films is just as important as creating this great look on screen, in my opinion. So my two picks uh, for this year for best visual effects were a tie between Mission Impossible Fallout, which I thought looked wonderful, and a uh, much lesser known film, but uh, definitely a film that used CGI in a different way, uh, and that was uh, Upgrade. Mm, yep. Yeah. With the uh, the mounted camera. Sorry. That was like a deafening silence. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Just, that was just hilarious. Yeah. Uh, just um, like, how dare you like that aspect of that film? I think we were both just it. trying to remember. Right. So you, when you're, you get... you're, you're thinking of the Lee Winnell film, right? I was thinking of the film where the guy gets an upgrade and then he has to Are you fight. About Hardcore Henry? No, I'm uh, talking about the guy who gets an upgrade when he, he his wife is murdered. Yeah, and that, like, that's the way he went out. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and right. and like he gets knocked down and he like he's he's on the floor. Yeah, I mean they they, right. they do that kind of movement. Yeah. Which, so yes, that is uh, yeah, that was a staple of some of the action sequences. You were correct. Yeah, but the. Uh, <laughs> Damn. I don't know why we both just like froze. Yeah. yeah. The, what uh, the you're all, fuck you're, did you just it's, say? it's like being in high school again and be like, you can't sit with us. <laughs> what the fuck? I've been here for the past hour. The, the fight choreography going along with the actual movement of the camera and also just yeah. the, the different way they're able to play with there is just so wonderful. And even though it's not necessarily the first time we've seen anything like that, um, it does feel super authentic in the way that it's presented in this particular film. Um, and even though there obviously is computer-generated imagery throughout this film, uh, 
it really feels like this actually feels like this is really happening. Um, and I think that's important. And it's, it's, I'd way rather watch something that's created like this and something like another Transformers film that just like, look it, we created a CGI building. It's like, yeah. do we need this? I heard that the last one was really good, which shit, why didn't, man. Bumblebee? Yeah. I heard it was, it was all right. I heard it was all right. And it was I was okay. like, man, it's like they should have just. You're, you're grading on a down curve. Though. Yeah, it's I not, mean, like... It's not hard. Right? Um, the, the, the last thing I will say uh, to go along with uh, the two that I had as a tie um, is uh, my special mention was uh, all the effects that were done for the documentary They Shall Not Grow Old. Oh, my God, which, yes. dude, that is painstaking hours of getting exact details right so you can watch an actual film mm-hmm. happen on the screen in I, front of you. I echo that sentiment. I think that would be my... Um, that would be one of my two favorite uh, special effects this year. And that's the thing is that you need to look at it as a, a sum. Like it right. cannot cannot just be who did the best work with computers this right. year. Like that's not that's not right. Like right. people did a lot of incredible work and did things that were um really outside the box. Yeah, and that and, changed the shape of a film and that made, that made a film possible. That made it look different than something right. you've necessarily not that you've not ever seen before right. but make it look like something you are excited to mm-hmm. look at because it's not just Chris Pratt massaging a fucking fake Velociraptor and you're just like yeah. ugh yeah yeah this is creepy is I thought he- that I thought that that was going to go in an entirely different direction and I will not say that on on the mic anyway or or, or another example of that in a film that I absolutely loved like Infinity War where Josh Brolin wasn't on set and yet they had to interact with him which is so fucking weird mm-hmm. um that that's just one of the or um I'm going off on CGI here a little bit. Now I'm just <laughs> thinking about Sir Sir Ian McKellen just like crying on the set of the Hobbit and this makes me so um, the, anyway, continue. one of the more famous shots of the awkwardness of uh, CGI and also motion capture is uh, Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, Emma Watson walking down with Dan Stevens as he's we- almost looks like the fucking Michelin Man <laughs> walking down the yeah, uh, yeah. stairs with her, and it is so awkward. Yeah. So, yep. Uh, I was gonna really quickly throw out that if I chose something uh, which I I'm choosing right yeah. now, uh, it would be Annihilation. Okay. Uh, I feel like that entire finale is built on the integrated and seamless use of special effects. It's not to say that obviously it sometimes doesn't look like an uncanny valley, mm-hmm. but I think that's also makes it work. And I feel like the special effects works. If I'm seeing a finale like that, and I feel like I haven't seen this iteration before, like that's a success. And for it to do that, uh, I think throughout the movie with some of the f- uh, effects of the shimmer and some of the, uh, and monsters or whatever you want to call it, the creatures, I should say, and the uh, floral pa- uh, stuff that's on right. the planet. It's just that part was really never in doubt when the, I watched that movie. The, 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 you know, another thing that's about that final scene, too, to go along with the special effects, and, and it really does play along into something that I think that we're going to eventually get into with films, especially in theater presentation, which is creating ways to involve other senses in things that you're seeing mm-hmm. on the actual screen. The bass and the actual like feeling in the theater of that Yeah, the music the music was the music, fucking the music behind it going along with the images you're seeing like created this really yeah. um just very weird and um 
like it created the feel of what it would be like to be Natalie Portman in that room. I will say that in, that in the book, there is a scene that is similar to that um, in that there is a creature that exists that you're trying to wrap your head around and like for the description of it. And it was like legitimately I remember reading it. It was like it was the closest like to like a psychotropic experience through literature I've ever had. Like it was just, it was fucking bonkers. And I feel like that will always be more visceral in book form than film form. But I'll say that the, the film it's on that level. Like it's, it's, it, it, it definitely knows what it's aiming at, whether it hits it directly on the mark. I'm not, I can't really say, but like it knows exactly what the fuck it's trying to go out for. And it does a pretty damn good job. Um, for my favorite special effect, uh, not uh, uh, outside of just the uh, "they shall not grow old" stuff, um, but the faux stereoscopic filter on Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. That was gonna be my other because I feel like it just it it really that effect was so fucking good and so comprehensive and so exhaustive that Sony pictures made a a concerted effort to patent the software that allowed them to be able to produce that effect for feature for future films now whether or not that'll actually ever like come to bear in anything other than this like the fact that the strength of that effect was so distinctive and so like consummately defining to that film that they had to patent the software the proprietary software that like allowed them to do it says to me that that was a pretty damn great special effect and it's something that i'm always going to remember having seen it in the theater so right on yeah good times i would ask more but i'm going to finally go see it in a couple days yes i will not tell you anymore right on yes uh, so, best film trailer of the year. One of my favorite things. Did you also not do this? I, no, I did that one. Okay, I, I did just this assuming one. we're gonna have the same answer. Yeah. Oh, okay. So go ahead. Yeah. So I was actually uh, reaching out to some colleagues, like thinking about what were some of the best trailers that came out this year. And after going through a lot of the candidates, like one of the trailers was so good that it actually made me finally sit down and watch the film proper itself. And that was the original teaser trailer for Widows. Because it has this really, like, interesting, like, glitchy, like, EDM, like, sinister EDM, like, take on a Nina Simone song in the background. And it has, like, this really awesome, like, highlight reel and just shows, like, all these casts of characters, like, working together with one another. And it was just really, really fucking good. Like, it's just, like, I'm, I'm, I'm. Thinking about it right now, I'm just like, damn, that was a really great sizzle reel that sells you on a film without telling you how it ends or how stuff really like plays out. Like it's just it's good. So yeah. I'm guessing you also have Mission Impossible Fallout. That's correct. Mm. Yeah. It is pretty I, much perfect. Yep. I, I did have a runner up as I thought the uh the first initial not the teaser, <laughs> but the first full length trailer for Mary Poppins Returns was um, something that turned the page for me on that film, and it made me extremely intrigued to go to the uh, the theater to go see it. And the ending of that of um, Emily Blunt saying "Here we go," falling back into the bathtub, which apparently they actually the real did. bathtub. I that should have probably actually been mentioned in our visual effects little conversation. Yeah, because, yeah, it was a real bathtub. So many things that you think are CGI in that movie. Probably not actually. Yeah, they were really underwater for a long time. They lost a lot of kids, but it was worth it. (laughs) God damn, dude. 
Uh, but no, uh, Mission Impossible. That trailer is. I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything that could have gotten me more pumped for a film. Um, that was just fucking great. I agree. I mean, the scene on top. Of, oh God, so good. Yeah, it's like if you don't have time to watch Mission Impossible Fallout, you can just watch the trailer and get your high. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yep. What is the next category? <laughs> the next category is a category that I think uh, Nick will probably like, and I think you picked this one out last year, and that is best use of a song. <laughs> yeah. Um, I always have an answer for this. Yeah. My best use of a song, and again, I don't want to spoil anything more for Alex, because I know he's about to see this film, mm-hmm. but my favorite use was um, Chemical Calisthenics, by Black Alicious in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, simply because um, it's set during a school scene, and it is it, it honestly made me so very hyped in the theater. Like I went to go see it like twice. I went to go see it with you, and then I went to go see it with my friend Adam. And we were just geeked over that scene because we listened to that song, that exact song, when we were in high school. And not only that, but the subject matter and the wordplay in that song so perfectly matches up to what is going on in that scene. It's just like it, it's it's such a, a pitch perfect like licensing. So I love that song. My choice for best use of a song. Yeah. Was found in a little film called The House That Jack Built. Oh, boy. Which was Hit the Road Jack. Because as a stinger, I just think that, honestly, (sighs) Lars von Trier is one of the funniest people making movies right now. And I think that this is another example of that. Like, I don't think you can love Lars von Trier if you don't take him less seriously than the people that hate him. Yeah. You know, and I think a movie like The House That Jack Built proves that as far as that he's working a lot of time, not all the time, in a form of black comedy. And that stinger of a closing credit song is so fucking perfect of a needle drop that I was just gobsmacked that I didn't think about it beforehand, you know, and that I couldn't predict it, especially because he keeps uh, repeating fame. So you have that earworm literally blocking any possible uh, part of your brain that could make room for any conjectures as to how he will end it. Because he does a lot of famous needle drops at the end of his film. He famously and controversially did it at the end of Dogville with David Bowie's Young Americans. Uh, But here, it's just fucking pitch perfect. Uh, For that to be the final punchline in the saga of Jack is just... uh, is both satisfying as a narrative ending, but also, I think, tells you that Lars von Trier hates himself more than you possibly could. Oh yeah, probably. My um, best use of a song was Hit the Road Jack in The House That Jack Built. I think mostly why I liked it so much is the stark contrast in the tone of that song between the excruciating final scene of that film, which is like somewhat for the audience, at least in my opinion, uh, you feel a bit of like, this is probably what he deserves. Um, but at the same time, it is somebody going through hell and finding out that 
you know, you've heard a lot about this place, but really this is just a shithole that you're going to burn in for the rest of time. Yeah. Unlike your <laughs> art, you really can't make this to be more than it is. No. And um, It is what it is. It is the sum of your life. Yeah. Which isn't much. Yeah. And, and him just falling down the tube, just like many of the, his fallen Star Wars friends, um, <laughs> is interesting enough in itself but then to smash cut basically to that song just ding, 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 ding. i don't know it, it doesn't it, work it either is, yeah. if you don't spend at least which we do 30 minutes in that elongated epilogue it's such a jarring like fucked up like yeah, yeah. yeah. so no that um that was that was pretty fucking good mm-hmm. yep i was a fan so uh and i i really did like that movie a lot yeah. um but that part um, that's just kind of a no contest up. yeah <laughs> So, moving on to the best film score. My favorite film score of the year was um, Suspiria hey, by, by Tom York. Uh, because I have a funny, I have a funny little anecdote from this. Because uh, Dario Argento actually commented on <laughs> the 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 uh, the remake, uh, and he said that there was no fear and no no music to it and that it, it, it gave him which, which is praise. which is the most powerful shade I've ever seen thrown like I, I reposted it on, on Twitter and I was just like a fake quote that says like no bops shit don't even clap in the whip and I was just like god damn um, <laughs> I love that score I love Volk I've actually listened to like unmade like multiple times I think it's a fucking great score um, and I'm not just saying that because I like Radiohead or that I like Tom York. I just think that it for the film, I've, it it was so fucking good. I'm tired of Radiohead and Tom York I feel since that. In Rainbows, and yet I love this score. So. Yeah, I feel that. Like yeah. I feel, yeah, In Rainbows is definitely like the last time that I don't like dislike anything they've done right? after it, but I right. don't, I don't particularly care. Right? Yeah. Um, I feel that. I will also say one other choice was a tie with this was also the score for the old man and the gun, um, where uh, David Lowry actually, I, I remember there was an article written about it that was kind of fascinating, so I don't remember all the details, but it is a original uh, jazz score, which is really unheard of these days. I mean, certainly, first of all, to use jazz, that's not obviously a common thing sadly but especially to white people save jazz well that's true i take it back um but to actually come up with original compositions and to trust in that uh, i know that you can't hear it but i am like loudly silently judging my two co-hosts right now just the just oxymoron just the most yeah it's kind of oxymoron it's like take away the oxy and that's what i think of you guys Um, I mean, it has to make you feel a little bit better that the uh, Academy seems to be somewhat done with Damien Chazelle. After they said, you won, you didn't win. Oh, by the way, next time when you think you've got it with Neil Armstrong and everything, you're done. Get out. Yeah. Yeah. Get out! Get out! Get out! Um, I was going to wrap it up. Oh, my God, it's us. By what? saying that, um, no, to nobody, do nothing. No, what, what were you saying? I said, "Oh my God, it's us!" And then, uh, because that's the name of the next Jordan Peele film. No, because that's the line that they say in the trailer. Yeah, I've got five on it. Anyway, oh. continue. Okay, you only saw the trailer once. Yeah, right? I was going to so, say. Yeah, it's fine. I'm sorry. Please continue. No, no, no. I was just going to say for it to be an original uh, jazz composition and not just um, 
which is very common too, uh, to take old standards and kind of reinvent them. It's just, uh, it's pretty striking and it fit the movie perfectly and it's a score that I would actually listen to outside of the narrative of the film, which is kind of what I look for in a score. Nice. Some scores do work beautifully in a movie, but just don't fucking matter outside of it. So. Yeah. Well, I would say um, my choice for a top score would probably fall into that category, but I love it just as much the same, and I like it because it gets gives me the feel of um, when Hans Zimmer made a very unusual score for uh, the film Interstellar, where he understood Didn't. that people were giving him shit for every single film, be like, boom, boom, boom. Um, and then he went in a very different direction in Interstellar, uh, where I feel like this film went in a different way than its predecessors, uh, and that is the score in Mission Impossible Fallout, which yeah. I absolutely loved. Michael, um, Michael Giacano? Or no? Uh, I know he did four and five. I want to say maybe he did six. I'm not sure, to be okay. honest with you. Sounds I like your do, favorite I, score. I did not do my very good homework on this. I'm going to look it up while you keep talking. Okay. Um, I really enjoyed the high school, college-esque drumming uh, that's heard in the background throughout this. I think it adds very a lot of originality to this score and also originality to the ideal of moving through an action film as you have this constant, repeatable thing that you can come back to that isn't like a refrain that continues to happen in a uh the same song that kind of needs to pop up over and over again you get the same kind of notes in drumming but it also has subtle differences that make it sound the same but also can make it go backwards and forwards and it, it was pretty wonderful i guess it was done by someone i never heard of before okay. mm-hmm. named lorne belf okay and apparently he had done scores for things like 13 hours the secret soldier of benghazi um... and um penguins of madagascar <laughs> <laughs> So, he's got range. Yeah. Um, and then I did have a runner-up, and this is super random, but I also enjoyed it because it fit really well within the content of the film it was in. And that was by Tatiana Lizavatsky. Do you want me to try? Uh, no, I got this. Okay. Tatiana <laughs> Livaskaya. There oh, we go. That's, right. that's pretty close. All right. Um, her super sad score that fit really well in the Vincent Van Gogh film at Eternity's Gate. Um, a film that nobody saw, uh, but at the same time, uh, I thought was a wonderful portrait haha, of a extremely depressed man who uh, really did just want to paint and show his view to the world mm-hmm. so uh it was a actually pretty solid film but also the score really mirrored well with the rest of the uh, goings on of ed attorney's gate can i add one more really quickly okay <coughs> the other score i absolutely loved and mm-hmm. i think it's also very unfortunately timely but was johan johansson's final score which was the score for <sighs> mandy, mandy yeah. which was honestly my favorite thing he's probably done as a composer because that is just an ethereal, uh, psychedelic, hmm. but also beautifully somber piece. Just as a note, 
um, to tie back to our our episode on Mandy. I actually went to go see Mandy again in theaters. I fucking loved it. I did not fall asleep. I I rescind my criticisms of Mandy. I fucking love that film, and Alex actually gifted it to me. So thank you so much, Alex. I also gifted it gifted you this year's uh, redo of the Predators. Yeah, yeah you know. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. First of all, I thought this year's version of The Predator was Harvey Weinstein. Oh, uh, I'm really sorry, Tucson. No, it's okay. Uh, you know, take, you got to take the lemons with the... <laughs> you got you to gotta take the lemons with the lemonade, I guess. Well, that's how you do it. Yep. Okay, so um, let us talk about... Uh, favorite scene? Favorite scene of the film, of okay. the film of the year. So my favorite scene... Of the year was from If Beale Street Could Talk, and it's between Stefan James and Kiki Lane in their roles as Fonnie and Tish, the basically main couple of of the, the main characters of If Beale Street Could Talk. And it's just this young couple um, who is trying to find a place together, and they can't because a lot of landlords are racist, and a lot of landlords just don't want to have blacks in their building. And then finally, they do actually find a a studio a studio like warehouse sort of apartment stuff where Fani can work on his sculpture and hopefully you know tish can like do what she wants to do with that and uh it's an it's an interesting scene because it has dave franco in it and he's this jewish guy and he shows them this place and he's like are you sure about it and she is not enthused about it at all but it was wonderful because tish and Fani love each other very much and Fonnie is able to see something in that place that she's not able to see immediately. And she's like, you know, you could put your – we could put our bed here and we could put our table right here. And the camera actually like moves down, actually looks at the floor. And while he's actually describing the dimensions of the table, right? And there's a scene where there, – there's a part of the scene where he's like, you know, all you need is a, is a stove. And it's like, hey, can you help me with this? And he walks through. This other space, and they pantomime lifting up a stove, and he's like, "Honey, can you like open the door for us?" And she opens the door for us, and it's it's this really tender and endearing and and funny scene about how love can love opens up possibilities in spaces that we otherwise would never see ourselves in, and allows ourselves to to build something out of what seems to be seemingly nothing. And to and to see a future that is that is possible that we otherwise could not have ever seen before, and I thought that that was the scene of them gumming out and just like, like shouting and screaming and laughing. And there's and there's there's streamers above like hanging uh, across the street. It was it was euphoric. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, I went to go see this film on a date, and it was okay, but the film was good. Well, that is immortalized now, Yeah, I Yeah, guess what? It's immortalized now. <laughs> yeah. We should talk about my story when I went to go see uh, the movie Her on a date. Oh. Yeah. That's uncomfortable. Yeah. It was a good movie. Wow. Yeah. That's why it's yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I love that scene. It was incredible. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I watched my scene with my pants off on my couch <laughs> by myself. Uh, and my scene is about a person who loves himself so much that he unfortunately doesn't care about other people and what will happen to them in his own as collateral uh, to his own ascension. And that is the final 
rap battle sequence in Bond. Uh, oh, wow. Is, um, it's just a chore. Did really f- watch it with her pants off? That's all. Wow, he, he did the eye twitch and everything. He did the fucking uh, what what is the the name of the the? That's called, called a wink. <laughs> no, I'm I'm talking about the the Cuba Gooding Jr. Like the inventor of the wink. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is, yeah, the final bat, uh, battle rap sequence of Bodied is fantastic. Every character arc comes to a close, but if I'm just gonna even. <laughs> narrow it down a little more it is the final rap battle between our two newfound friends who basically lose everything in the span of four minutes and it is just fucking beautiful and awful at the same time yep you've told me uh specific things about that and boy howdy is that uncomfortable it is yeah certainly (laughs) so mine actually was a tie believe it or not, uh, between the opening scene of the movie Paterno, which I mentioned in our uh, top six episode, which is even if you don't really love the rest of the film, the opening 12-minute scene is absolutely fantastic. And the uh, other uh, scene that I was going to include is the climactic scene in Revenge, which is Ah. just fucking fantastic. Yep. As someone who is all about uh, just extraordinary two-person fighting scenes that include excessive amounts of blood. Uh, That scene delivered everything that I could possibly want. And boy, when they kind of, you kind of look at the landscape of, of what the damage is to that room afterwards. uh, It is, it is a fucking horror show. (laughs) And then you think about this, uh, I, I feel like the uh, the helicopter uh, pilot is the same helicopter pilot from, from Ex Machina. Machina. Yeah. yeah. Who's just going to show up and be like, What the fuck happened here? Something not so chill happened here. <laughs> I'm too uh, old for this shit. Those guys are gone. It's just me. But I've got a vagina, so it's fine. And he's probably like, come on down. You're the next contestant. Oh Tired for a job. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the dude, though, uh, the before he's killed, his final, like, why can't you guys, why can't you women yes. just yes. leave it alone? It's yep. just, oh, that is so um, and, uncomfortable and, to watch. And actually, that uh, that ending part actually is, and I mean, there's other violence that is certainly of this ilk, but that is the most gratuitous moment, probably, when she shoots him, and he literally flies about 15 feet down the hallway. Shit. It is awesome. Quentin Tarantino esque, and it is pretty wonderful. Yep. Yep. So no, yeah, that that line though. Boof. Boof. Yep. That's where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So up next is our most underrated film of 2018. Most underrated film of 2018. Um, yes. I would say that it is a toss-up for me between Widows and Shirkers. Okay. Um, Widows, I feel like, deserves – it deserves more appraisal. It, it deserves a more generous appraisal than it's gotten simply for the fact of, like, I feel like the the level of talent that has been attached to it may have sort of, like, offset sort of, like, how we are actually grading it along a curve – respective to what the participants have done in the past rather than see it for what it is, which is a good, serviceable, like, film. 
Yeah. Um, and Shirkers, I haven't heard anything much of Shirkers. Um, it was hard to see for a while. Yeah. And, and clearly got barely. <laughs> it was hard to see for a while because <laughs> that didn't exist. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, it also wasn't clearly advertised as well because I had no idea it was on Netflix, even though I'm one of the target audience. Hey, guess what? That's Netflix's whole fucking deal. Yep. It's a fucking problem. It sure is. Yeah. That's the future of film. Anyway, yeah. Yep. Uh, my most underrated film is a four-way tie. I'm gonna name four. <laughs> Damn. I'm gonna name four popcorn flicks that are genuinely worth seeking out, as long as you expect mediocrity. Okay. But is Mamma Mia Here We Go Again was actually a good musical, and it was much better of a movie than the first movie, which is one of the worst films I've ever seen. So take that for a grain of salt, that I hated one movie, but also very much enjoyed that one. I love Peter Rosenfall's take on it. <laughs> yes, you do. Um, the other, uh, Another movie, uh, Instant Family with Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne. Oh, yeah. That was honestly how you do saccharine drama. Um, it was a adorable family comedy that um you would have not gone and seen that without no like my mom wanted to go see it and then i was like okay sure Mm -hmm. and i was pleasantly surprised and i would watch it again Mm -hmm. and that's like that is the movie when your entire extended family is in one room and for some reason you all have to watch a movie like you could do worse than a property that tries to cater to everybody yeah um the first Purge. It is the best Purge film. Yep. It was a good modern black exploitation film without yep. actually trying to be that. Yep. Uh, and it was just a good little movie about this these times that we live in. Yep. And I highly recommend it, especially the uh, climax, which is kind of John Wickie and in its uh, its main character gets to basically go up into an apartment complex and fight his way up. To... I echo all of these endorsements. Yep. And the final one is uh, the comedy Blockers. Uh, oh, everything okay. like uh, uh, Game Night and even to an extent Tag got quite a lot of uh, you know buzz and whatnot. But Blockers was... Wait, that was 2017. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't. It was 2018. All right, good. I just, for a moment, I like flashed back for a second. <laughs> Um, no, but Blockers was an actual... Very early, it was in February. I, I was going to say, I re- it felt like a year ago, but yeah. that's why. Yeah. Um, but it was a very little scene, but female director, uh, female uh, predominated cast, because all the three daughters, and it just had a wonderful balance between the adults and the teens, and even people who I kind of feel like could tank something, like uh, John Cena who is usually good in his little bits, but here had to be a main character, was actually decent, um, and it just had a lot of fun moments. And it was not afraid to be raunchy, which obviously can be bad in a lot of stupid movies, but in this instance, actually just kind of, like, we haven't had this kind of raunchy good in quite some time. So uh, I think Blockers is worth a watch. Very good. Uh, So my most underrated film. Five-way tie, you bastard. It's only two, believe it or not. Uh, is a two-way tie between Paterno, yeah. which I, I, again, think everyone should see, and also Overlord. Yeah, that uh, was definitely... If I had... I was going to do five, but I didn't. No, that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> but um, no, that was definitely... Overlord. No, it uh, it was definitely... A, a felt like a very original, unique film, um, and it also was done well. So I... You know, it was too bad that not as many people saw either of those, but I am really happy that I got to see Overlord in the theater because there was not a really good chance to see it in the theater, but the fact that, you know, had was able to see it and not it didn't have to go 
60 miles to see it was yeah. uh, was pretty cool to, that I was really able to do that. So yeah. those are my two picks. So now we've done the most underrated. How about the inverse and the most overrated film of <laughs> 2018? <laughs> okay. Um, Why are you looking at me? Tucson's got six. No, <laughs> I have two. Okay. First of all, I'm sure Aquaman is one of them. Uh, I don't think that was no. rated, rated. No. I, I mean, felt like he went pretty hard on Aquaman on Twitter. I, but I'm I, saying as I far went, as people actually I went pretty crazy. hard on Aquaman in, in my Letterbox <laughs> review. I was gonna say, I thought you were going to say I went pretty hard on Aquaman in my life, but that's all right. <laughs> on my life, too, yeah. Um, a lot of people thought that they really – a lot of people really liked Aquaman. Yeah, and, and I can see why I can see why they liked Aquaman to that extent. It just didn't do that for me. Gotcha. Um, for overrated, I'd have to say, um, fortunately – Avengers, Infinity War, or Black Panther. Wow. Um, okay. I almost said Black Panther, but I'm white, and I, I didn't feel comfortable saying that. You know, it's okay, buddy. It's yeah. okay. Um, Sorry to bother you. No, it's... Anyway. That would have actually, to me, been one of the worst Best Picture nominees in a while if it weren't for Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. So I, I that, think that, that's I, helping its cause. I think that... Um, to sort of just be succinct in this, like, I think that I, man, I don't give a fuck about anything that happens in Avengers Infinity War. And, like, when they all die at the end, I'm just like, I was actually looking forward to, like, seeing a culling. To actually see some people, like, visibly die on screen. Because you have the one scene in, like, uh, Age of Ultron where it's, like, Tony going for the vision of people, like like on a mound out of a body and see the invasion force that's descending on, on, on earth. And it's like, wow, that's really affecting like that itself was more affecting than any one fucking loss in infinity war with the exception of Gamora. Gamora wasn't actually like, it was a hard loss, but the only other people who die are like supporting characters like Heimdall who, you know, I'm going to miss, but like it's fucking, uh, 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 what's his name? Um, Loki. No Heimdall, the, the black guy. Yeah, Ed, Ed, Idris Elba. He's got other shit to do. Like, like, let the man go. And Loki, Loki has only been kept around for as long as he has because he's a fan favorite. And you know what? It's time to retire that character. I'm glad that he had an ending that he did. Whatever, it's fine. Move on. Um, Gamora actually felt like it had an actual loss, but there just wasn't. For me, the proportion of like meaningful deaths, like principal deaths, to actual like. On screen deaths that will come back eventually. It's just fucking galling. Yeah, we're and I, literally seeing the trailers for the next movies already. Exactly. So. And I'm like, why the fuck should I fucking care? And you're gonna have you're gonna have the fucking gall to have fake promotional grief counseling at fucking Comic Con for this bullshit. Well we're all just dust in the wind. How fucking dare you? You you must think I'm a fucking child. Anyway. Um with Black Panther, I loved Black Panther. I still love Black Panther. I feel as though <clears throat> I think that it is, in my opinion, one of the better like live action MCU like superhero films. That being said, there are some parts that have not aged well. Like some of the special effects were just not complete at the time when the film actually happened. And I and I didn't notice it until coming back to the film. 
Um, the, lo- the look of the people like standing around when they're doing this ceremony is like it looks like a it looks like a Final Fantasy FMV from like circa mid nineties. I will say, this. which was impressive in the mid nineties, but like the Spartacus TV show has better background CGI. And I've seen that show, and I agree with yeah. you. And that's kind of fucked, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, because that was one of the laughing stocks of that show was having to have coliseums of people, right. despite the fact that it had such a shit budget. Right. Uh, and yet, actually, I feel like it kind of works for that show. Whereas, if you're MCU, you should not <laughs> have to. We should do better than this. Yeah, they yeah. should do better. Um, so, unfortunately, I feel like the most overrated film is going to... <sighs> It's probably going to be a constant for a lot of these Marvel Cinematic Universe films just because I feel like they get talked about the most. They get talked about the most and then the the, the content mill churn just keeps on pumping out those hot takes. And I'm and I'm and I'm just I, I'm, I'm so checked out. I'm done. I don't want to I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. I have my one good superhero movie that I had this year that I really fuck with. Like, let's just let's just call it a day, man. All right. I'm done. <laughs> okay. Thank you. My most overrated film is A Star is Born. Yeah. Uh, I thought I'm was, not surprised. I thought it was okay. Like, mm-hmm. um, But I'm not understanding the Bradley Cooper hype as a director. Neither and, is Spike Lee. Well. <laughs> yeah. You see uh, that fucking photo of him that looks like uh, the captain from Jaws about to hunt the great white Bradley? Yeah. Um, he made an okay film based on a long line of better films yeah and in my opinion he i genuinely do like lady gaga in it so i do think what she had to or what she did with what she had was great uh obviously the music including uh, included but the movie in my opinion has a great first half hour and then succumbs to white boy pain because (laughs) that i don't understand how this tale ends up being more about uh, Norman or Jackson Maine um, than the actual character it should be about. And I'm sorry, but this version of Maine is a dick. It doesn't matter if he's sober or he's drunk. Um, Fucking Star Trek? What? (laughs) But he is an asshole, and I never really cared for him as a person because he is trashing uh, what's her name's character, Allie or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when 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 Andrew Dice Clay is the the has the moral high ground. Yes, you know you done fucked up, and yet <laughs> you the, really fucked up, man. You may the, want to take a step back. And yet the entire movie is is predicated on the idea that he's this hidden angel and it makes no sense because they just do not he did not earn that whatsoever uh i just thought this was a a bad (laughs) it was a good movie that was unfortunately sunk by some very bad choices in the remake department because i don't think bradley cooper himself truly understand what made the past versions good i think something that's interesting about this and this goes in the academy awards it was nominated for lots of them i think it's eight I want to say, um, I'm happy that Sam Elliott was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor award, but I don't think he should have for this film because I think he's done much better work in yeah, a lot of other films. He's also, what did he do in this movie? <clears throat> Nothing. He had one driveway conversation. That's it. He's got a couple other small things in here that were, that were good. But were they really supporting what this no. film was doing? No. I no. mean, it's just... I really like Sam Elliott as an actor, though, so... Oh, uh, I do, too. I was, I was really happy like that I he thought... actually got nominated for an yeah. Academy Award, but 
when I, I I was like sad because I was like somebody got passed over that gave a much better performance just because we wanted to give credit to this film. And I still to this day don't fully understand the relationship between Sam Elliott's character and Bradley Cooper's character. Well, they're brothers. I they say that, but <laughs> They don't really act like it. I don't mean that in the way that they're estranged well, and whatnot. I I'm think... just saying, like, they, he mumbles the exposition, and I, it's just a fucking weird movie to me. It's they're... got some decent scenes and some yeah. good songs, but overall, that I do not understand anyone who sits up there and says that Bradley Cooper is some kind of tour de force. He made a movie, and while I do think he shows promise, this is, like, most of the greats whatever you want to call them, directors, made better first films than this. Yeah. Just, I don't know. I, um, it's perplexing to me. Yeah. I, I think people like... Fuck Bradley Cooper. I think people like Bradley Cooper, so I think that's part of I it. I know, and that's fucking stupid. And I think also to what this film has going for it, which is why uh, mainstream-wise this got really, you know, it got through so easily. And it's very interesting that... Almost, I mean, I don't know about the very first one, but this the, these are films that are driven by their female leads. Um, and this is no different, which is why Bradley Cooper and all of his... No? They should be driven by their female leads. And I mean, if, I if, think... if, if you look back at it, Julie, Judy Garland and... Um, um, oh, uh, James Mason? No, no, I, I was, I was thinking of uh, the oh, next Lady... one. Oh, Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand. Yeah. Or what you think of when you look back on it. I agree. But I think 10 years from now, the first thing anybody will think of when they look back at this is Lady Gaga. But I think that's because of her acting, not because of her character. Like, people are more amazed the same way about Bradley Cooper. Well, which that's, is just, that that's just stupid. It is stupid. <laughs> but that's what I'm just saying. They're having a similar moment here, which is that Lady Gaga has never been taken seriously in the public eye at large. And so here she gives a fantastic performance doing what she does best too. Mm -hmm. And Bradley Cooper is now also the guy from the hangover movies getting to make this serious issue movie and being behind the camera. So they're both being treated the same. Let me get a look at you. So first of all, that line is actually in every iteration. Um, and yet, only he makes it sound creepy. Like James <laughs> only, Mason, he, only, only his ham-handed like delivery was able to turn it into a meme. Yeah. I, the last thing I'll say is that I think what really just put the final nail in the coffin for me was the suicide. Because before the suicide, he, in this version, basically is reacting to the <laughs> evil agent who says bluntly, like, yeah, you should probably kill yourself. Like, I know that wasn't his exact line, but that's... That is so fucking beside the point of any of these movies that th- the main character doesn't kill himself because some devil comes into his living room. It's like, <laughs> it's supposed to be because they realize on their own and almost accidentally and uh, cognizantly that maybe the person that they love most would be best off without them. And the fact that some random stranger is able to say it and no other reason is just fucking stupid. So, uh, my most overrated film of the year was pretty easy for me to land on and it was Hereditary. Uh, Okay, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I, um, I listened to you guys throwing rose petals at it, and I very much understand that as just like with something like It Follows years ago. I Do you am... think it's a horror film? Yeah, of course. Okay, thank you. I am in the minority on this film for the most part. 
Um, that being said, I just really didn't care for it. Yeah. So I, uh, I appreciate that most people really enjoyed it, but I thought the last 30 minutes were for the most part stupid. And, um, that's I just, fair. I, just, I, I, that, I think that's fair. I just didn't love it. And, um, I just don't see what everybody else sees in this. I like, I like going back and making fun of the last 30 minutes. Um, because the naked guy in the, uh, the closet who's just like smiling at him. It's still just the funniest fucking thing about that film. Just the creepiest fucking thing. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah. I've got not don't have much more to say about it. Yeah. I actually yeah. do think that there are, are parts of um, Hereditary that are very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two scenes that we referenced on the previous episode, I think, are both fantastic scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the that ending, I just couldn't care. Yeah. So yep. Moving on uh, to our last two categories, the first of which will be our least favorite ending of the year. This is difficult um, because my least favorite ending of the year is also my most favorite ending of the year. It's that polarizing. I know. It's that It's that polarizing. Um, and who would it be other than First Reformed? Uh, First Reform's ending, I... Your number one movie of the year. Yeah, my number one movie of the year. Least favorite ending? Yeah. And most favorite ending at the same time? I would say I would fold these two categories... To be fair, I've seen the movie, I would would fold these into... The ending is my least favorite part of that movie. Yeah, I would would fold these these two into not just best or worst, but rather what was the most polarizing ending for me in that way. So I'm talking about the merits and the demerits of of that ending. Um, all of the rising tension of the ending of First Reformed, I loved all of that leading up to the eventual like climax, and the climax like took me at it took me by surprise so much, and then ended so abruptly that I I bought this through through Amazon Prime. Yeah, I know I said fuck Jeff Bezos, but guess what? We are all trapped in the belly of this this <laughs> terrible machine, and the machine is bleeding to death. Um. Uh, when it ended, I was like, "Wait a minute! Like, is something fucked up with the my purchase? Do I need to get this refunded?" And no, I actually went back, and I and I was watching this at night, so like the screen was dark, and I was like, "What the fuck is going on?" And so trying to like reconcile that, and I'm just like, I'm not sure how I felt about the abruptness of that ending. Like, it's just, it just it really kind of left a sour note. But everything up to that point, like I was so on bored with that and i'm and i'm still am i still think it's a great ending up until it ends you know what i mean you know what i mean it's fucking weird like the other side on the other side of that ending like i just feel so weird by how by by that choice but everything on the on the preceding side of it is just so this is great yeah yeah i can see that yeah so that's my that's my candidate for least favorite and favorite? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I feel like we should just continue that trend, and I'm just going to say what my least favorite That's right. and favorite. Okay. Uh, separate. Sounds <laughs> my good. My least favorite ending in a movie is the ending of Blind Spotting. Uh, I had heard a lot of talk about it. It's a film that stars uh, Debbie Diggs and his uh, apparently lifelong friend, who I forget, but he's a white boy. 
and um, <laughs> white it, boy digs. Yeah, um, and you know it's such a good like I was. It could have been in my top ten for the first seventy five minutes. Hmm. The last fifteen minutes completely turned me off and really lost me because it really went out of its way to. I don't know, tear up all the good faith I had bestowed upon it for being a wonderfully lived-in drama f- uh, contrivance-free and just kind of meditation of uh, friendship and race and the intersection of those kind of awkward uh, boundaries and whatnot. And then in the last 15 minutes just went... I don't even know. Like, it, it, like if I explained it, it would sound weird on paper, so I'm not going it's like to. You must be misunderstanding this thing. I th- must yeah. be. Uh, <laughs> but literally the climax of the film has David, character, David Diggs' character rapping his thoughts, <sighs> even though he wasn't really a rapper. Like he, I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, not to mention it happens during a very out-of-left-field, contrived, uh, writerly moment. So hmm. it just fucking tanked for me unfortunately my favorite ending don't need to talk about it much is the entire Virgil sequence of the house that Jack built Ah. Uh, from the moment it starts uh, to the depths that it goes to obviously yeah to obviously the stinger of hit the road Jack that is just a tour de force of uh, trolling filmmaking in a way and yet it's also the least provocative part of the film, which is, I love that kind of double-edged sword. It's like, oh, so it's... It's, it's so mundane like, and so and so um, sedate, yeah. almost, compared to the, the the insanity of what preceded it. My favorite part, just, yeah. just a moment, is like, my favorite part of that is when there's the sort of, uh, like, cinema verite of them, like, going into yeah. the water the and, GoPro. Then, and then, then popping up. <laughs> it felt like, hi, I'm Virgil, and this is Jackass. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's such a random, like, he plays Welcome around. to Jackass. Yeah. No, but he does, and that's kind of felt like that was a throwback to his Dogma 85 days. <laughs> yeah. And um, just like the sequence in that really tall red room uh, was also kind of a melancholia homage. Like, there's a lot in that entire movie and also in that final sequence, but I think it's gorgeous and fully realized, and I would watch an entire film made out of it. Hmm. So. so I have a uh, runner-up for my least favorite ending of the year in Tucson. We'll probably co-sign this. And that is the ending to the film Vox Lux. Um, first things first, uh, it just ends with a performance that she's been working her way up to uh, on this kind of, it was just like one day in the modern times yeah. that we're in. Yeah. Um, also, to uh, the girl that plays the younger version of her plays her daughter in the modern time version, which yeah. is kind of weird. Yeah. That's an interesting casting choice. That was like when... Um, it reminded me a little bit of when, uh, what's his name? Our uh, children just end up inheriting our own mistakes. That's the sort of the vibe that it's going for, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you guys uh, know that Mr. Glass's mother <laughs> is younger, like ten years younger or five years younger than Samuel L. Jackson? They always underestimate the mastermind. Just wanted to let you know. Um, what's his name? Now that's a mother. What's his name? Ridley Scott did a Robin Hood movie like 10 years ago, nine years ago, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And he had this really stupid idea of having Russell Crowe play both uh, Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham. 
Luckily, he didn't do that. But that was one of the dumbest ideas I have ever heard. Um, and he kind of went full on then when he made the counselor. And he was just like, oh, I've got stupid ideas. Anyways, um, that was not a great choice in that film. But the final scene is this performance. And I felt bad because I didn't know how I should be feeling about the actual performance. Because that's what you are really watching, even though there's other things happening and there's narration and all that shit. But during the final performance that Natalie Portman's putting on and she's doing and whatever, and even though she's getting into really stupid, nonsensical shit throughout it in her narration, um, she was really proud of this final scene as her husband, who is a dance choreographer who she met um, (laughs) when she was filming Black Swan, uh, choreographed this final scene. And... I was watching this and I looked at Toussaint when we left and he said the exact same thing that I said, which is that looked terrible. <laughs> yeah. I, there was just some about everything that happened in that final scene where I was like, I guess maybe they were going for that, but I really don't think they were. Even the songs fucking sucked. Yeah. <laughs> and they were written by Sia. Just the way you said it was Had great. no bops. They sucked. Not and they were written by Sia. I mean, Sia writes really good songs when she wants to, but I'm just like, did she just fucking phone these in? I don't know. Here's what we want. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, no, that, I, I, I just, the whole thing, the whole thing didn't really work, but that ending was just a real limp dick. Uh, the actual. Just right across the finish line. Yeah. <laughs> Sort of. Uh, the actual worst ending of the year actually was a film that I didn't hate, uh, but an ending that was super stupid, and that was the ending to the film A Simple Favor. Mm. Um, I just thought the way that the ending played out was really dumb, and then there was this really odd denouement that featured the awkward neighbor running over um, Blake Lively's character, I believe it was, with a car. And I just don't understand what happened there. So there were some decisions made in that, but they were not good ones. So I was not a fan of that ending, and I thought it was dumb. Yeah. So the last thing we will have on this 2018 episode, and the last 2018 thing we'll probably talk about for a while, um, was my favorite ending, and that is the ending to a little movie called Upgrade. Um. I love the way of the setup of the ending and it has a very clear path that it could go down and it goes a different direction and uh, decides to really just have the villain win. And that's it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I'm sorry if I spoiled it for anybody who hasn't seen it. And if you haven't, um, you should see it because there's a lot more to it than that. Um, But this film is fighting an uphill battle. And then when it reaches the peak, it uh, can't reach its reach the top. And then it ends. And um, I thought it was fantastic, to be honest with you. Because, A, um, Logan is Logan Marshall Green, is that his name? Yeah. The Tom Hardy lookalike. Yeah. Uh, he he is, is fighting to almost be to a spot where um, Joey Pants is in The Matrix. Where he kind of just wants to be ignorant and just pretty much be dead for the most part. And um, after the 
endless inner turmoil that he has uh, with uh, the machine that's taken over his body. Um, eventually, the machine wins, and uh, then his body's basically just a surrogate for murder and destruction. Um, but yet, he's happy and at peace in his own mind. Um, and it, it was, I honestly thought it was brilliant, and uh, I love that ending. And it was uh, very... Um, it, it was... It, I won't put it in the same category as something like Seven, but it was a very icky walk-off moment that I kind of loved. You, damn it, you just reminded me of my other favorite ending of the year. Okay. Which was Unfriended Dark Web. Yeah. And I'm not even going to spoil what it is or really talk about it, because I think if you haven't seen it, you should watch the whole movie and unspoiled. Yeah. But uh, it has a similar vibe. Yeah. Yeah, that, um, that does not... The Unfriended Dark Web finale... Uh, does not have very many positive prospects for the future. No. Just, <laughs> sure doesn't. No. no. Which, but, which neither does um, neither does Upgrade. I was going to say, but Upgrade also, I kind of forgot about that that was the ending, and now I kind of want to rewatch it, so. Yeah. Yay. It's, it's, it's pretty fantastic, I thought. So, uh, if you out there were listening to this and uh, any of the categories, or all of them, you had thoughts on, always feel free to send them to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. We would love to hear them and uh, talk about them on an episode in the future. So um, thank you very much for listening to uh, both of these episodes. Uh, We love doing them, and we'll be doing them for probably as long as we do this podcast. Uh, So uh, look forward to 2019, a a year from now. So from Tucson Egan, Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diegman, thank you very much for catching up with us here on Film Tank. And we will be catching up with you. See you in the next year. Okay.